At Echelon Front, we hear amazing stories from the leaders that we get to work with, stories of impact, about how they've taken the principles that we teach and solved problems through leadership in their life. And we see them advance up the ranks or open doors for opportunities. And one of my favorite leaders that I get to work with at Echelon Front is our Chief Operating Officer, Jamie Lynn Cochran, who's here with us today. She is our first employee ever, employee number one, or the number one employee that she likes to say. Uh, and uh, as our Chief Operating Officer, she runs everything uh, at Echelon Front. Uh, for our team, and uh, she's also a mother of three, a SEAL wife, and, uh, and she is an extraordinary leader herself, uh, leading a team of about 40 employees now at Echelon Front, uh, and a bunch of independent contractors that work with all the time, uh, as well as a leadership instructor teaching these same principles uh, herself, and she has stood up the Women's Assembly, reaching out to uh, a whole new audience for us at Echelon Front, which is hundreds of women across the world that, that join these calls once a month and to come to muster and be a part of what we do, sharing these leadership principles to help them solve problems and win. Jamie, thanks for being here with us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for making the, the trip down to Texas to be a part of this. Easy day. Always fun to come to our headquarters. So we've worked together for many years now, uh, but for the people that may not know who you are, Talk to us about where you grew up and how you got to be where you are today. Yeah, so I was actually born in Utah, but then moved when I was three to Seattle. So I grew up just south of Seattle. I got one one brother. He's 10 years older than me. I had an awesome upbringing. I was one of those kids that did everything. I don't know how my parents kept up with me, whether it was sports or music or school. I was involved in a million different activities. So that kind of got me through school. And then when I was 18, I went to school. I moved to Los Angeles to go to college. I went to a small private school there uh, for my first year, quickly realized that I couldn't afford that school anymore. <laughs> so I moved to Cal State Los Angeles where I ended up getting my degree in marketing and communications. And um, really, I moved to LA quite frankly because I had this dream, you know, young, naive, I had this dream of becoming a musician. I was a vocal performance. I used to love to sing and write music and had an opportunity to do that throughout my time in, uh, in Los Angeles. And then that kind of brought me to graduation. I ended up working a couple random little jobs until I ended up marrying my husband who was not a SEAL at that time. We actually got married on a Friday and he started Bud's. Uh, the Monday after that. So quick transition from this life that I had lived up until that point to a very rapid introduction to the Navy. And that's how eventually I ended up getting to meet you and be a part of that SEAL community, which was a really special part of our lives. I got introduced to your husband, Flynn, in, uh, while he was going through Hell Week. So I remember uh, um, a mutual friend of ours that he uh, served with, that you're now friends with, it, it was an instructor at the time. And uh, it was like, here, you know, come meet the class OIC. And I remember talking, talking to Flynn and then putting him through the junior officer training course, the, the leadership, uh, uh, five weeks of leadership training, you know, four weeks of, of classroom, uh, week-long field training exercise. Uh, and Flynn was definitely a standout performer, you know, going through that, uh, through that, uh, that, that training. And I got to meet you when we served together at SEAL Team 1. So I left that as an instructor. Uh, I went to SEAL Team 1, which Flynn had, had gone to SEAL Team 1 out of uh, once he graduated from, from our, our SEAL qualification training or advanced training, and we were serving together. Uh, and you got volunteered to, uh, to run the change of command ceremony. Yeah, Flynn came home, and apparently you had put out word that you needed help with running this change of command event on base. And Flynn came home with the packet of information and all the details and basically passed it over to me. <laughs> at the time, I was a programs director at San Diego State. So event planning was kind of in my experience and my realm of expertise. So I was happy to take that on. But 
a common joke in our household because that's that's not the first time Flynn has ever done that and certainly not the last. <laughs> well, anyone who's served in the Navy knows that uh, we like to joke that Navy stands for never again volunteer yourself. <laughs> and so I had put out the word at like officer's call one morning, like, hey, we need someone to run the change of command ceremony. I had done that at SEAL Team 5, which is my first command as a junior officer, and it's a giant pain. There's a ton that goes into that. You have to send out the invitations and have all the protocols in place for all the, the, the senior officers and uh, you know and people that are going to be there. And so when Flynn was like, oh, yeah, I'll totally run that. I was like, hey, this is awesome. And he immediately turned it over to you, uh, which was fortuitous because we got to work together, and I thought, wow, this, this lady's very squared away, and you handle it all uh, masterfully, and uh, it was a great change of command ceremony. Uh, and so that was something in my brain as, uh, as, as the opportunity came to work with you at Front later that uh, I was like, I've worked with Jamie. She's very squared away. I think she's somebody that certainly can help us out. I will say what's interesting about that is had Flynn just come home and said, hey, run with this and let me run with it, it would have been one thing. But of course, Flynn said, hey, run with this. And then he, he liked to get involved. So I remember vividly planning that thing out. I had this system. I worked at San Diego State. I had a system for creating CAD drawings and creating layouts and putting in chairs and tables and staging and kind of mapping all that out. And Flynn was adamant that he could do this in PowerPoint. <laughs> so he was like trying to like put the chairs, but they couldn't angle the right way. Anyways, that was a great test in our marriage because he asked me to help with this. And then all of a sudden he's getting in there with the little details. It ended up being super fun because I got to work with you. And eventually Flynn r relinquished the reins and realized that, that that I got this. We got it covered. And it turned out to be a really fun event. And I had an, I had a great time getting to work with you for that as well. It was an awesome change of command. And uh, I got up credit for being the executive officer since I was actually in charge of this thing. You did all the work behind the scenes. And uh, so you made me look good, Jamie. Thank you. N nothing's changed life. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very true. You're still doing all the work behind the scenes at Echelon Front, which, which makes me look good. And it's my honor, for sure. So let's talk about how, uh, and I was going back and just reviewing notes, and I love your story that you started as a part-time admin assistant at Echelon Front. We're basically just, I mean, paying you just uh, the minimal amount that we could possibly afford. Even that was hard to get Jocko to agree to uh, initially. Um, as, you know, I was like, hey, we need someone to help us out. He's like, no, no, we're good. We can do it all ourselves. But at, you've taken that. You, 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 you started to take things off our plate. You started to uh, grow and expand your team. And very quickly, as our director of operations, you were running everything uh, to, to a point where now you are the chief operating officer at Echelon Front. And I, I want to talk about that story because I think that's a great story to share with people. You had a tremendous strategic vision for what Echelon Front could be before the book came out, before anybody knew who we were, before there was really even a promise of, of what this thing would, would grow to be. And you certainly saw the, the, the vision and the mission for what we do and the impact uh, and, and believe in this thing. Yeah, it's interesting because I had left a job or a career really where I thought I would be forever. I worked at San Diego State. I worked in a college environment. I worked with student leaders. I had a staff and a team of people to support and we had major events that we would run on campus and I loved it. I loved that job. And I thought I would be there forever. And then, of course, in, in true Flynn fashion, uh, my husband decides he's going to get out of the Navy and go to business school. And so we uprooted our family and we moved to Boston. And so I had two years in Boston where it didn't really make sense for me to go back into another career, go back to another company. And so I took two years off. I did a lot of kind of freelance side work project, kind of stayed busy. But I was essentially just home with my kids. And in those two years, I was really reevaluating what I wanted to do for 
the rest of my life? What was a career that was going to be something I could be passionate about and bought into? Um, and I loved working on the college campus, but I wasn't entirely sure I wanted to go back there. There's a lot of red tape, a lot of bureaucracy, and I wasn't sure if that was really what I wanted long term. Um, and also, there was a pretty high demand on like your schedule and when you show up and when you can be done. And in a, the event world, a lot of things outside of a standard schedule. I had two young kids. We ended up having our third in Boston. So I was ready for something new and kind of looking for a new mission and keeping an eye out. And then you showed up in Boston. I remember that trip and uh, I had gone out there to talk to the dean at the Harvard Business School to uh, just talk to him about uh, leadership and, and what they were teaching there and, and talk to him a little bit about what we had taught in the SEAL teams. And uh, so it was a great meeting and I'd reached out to Flynn and uh, who I knew was there at the time. And so was able to go and connect with you guys. I remember coming by the house. I, I believe you were pregnant with uh, your daughter at the yep. time. And uh, so the boys were toddlers running around. Uh, your middle son, Brendan, was tackled by your oldest son, Nico. And had a, uh, a head injury that I think made it required some ER attention. Uh, but I remember kind of laughing about that. Uh, and uh, you were handling all that masterfully. And it was just great to see you and Flynn and reconnect there. And I know I'd reached out to Flynn to, to talk to him. I, we'd had a phone call several months after that. I, I had visited with him while he was there. I think we'd gone and just grabbed some lunch together. And uh, we'd, we'd, I talked to him about Echelon Front and what Jocko and I were doing at the time. We had just gotten started. I mean, this we were... Uh, not even two years into Echelon Front at this point. And, uh, and I remember talking to Flynn on the phone several months later. This is like probably early 2014. And I was talking to him about, hey, you should really consider this opportunity um, uh, here. And, but one of the things that we spoke about was that we needed a lot of support. We're going to have to grow the team. And, and particularly on the administrative side, it was very hard for us to be on the road and engage with clients and answer emails. And you, know, you can't run training for a client on site where you have to be fully focused. You can't be checking your emails. Uh, and then have someone who's actually answering emails and talking to clients and all those things. So I just mentioned that. And you took the initiative to reach out to me. And uh, just in prepping for this podcast, it was fun to go back and research those emails. Uh, and I was going to just read read some of these because I think they're, they're they're fun to think about. This is back in April April tenth, twenty fourteen, an email that you sent to me, um, and uh, and you took the initiative to reach out based on a conversation that you had with Flynn from our phone call, uh, and you you sent uh, sent your resume along and said uh, that you were interested in the opportunity. So this was the email, uh, Flynn. Flynn also tells me that you may have a potential job opportunity with your consulting company, Echelon Front. Flynn speaks highly of you as a mentor, uh, and the opportunity to work with you is certainly of interest. I would love to discuss this further with you and get a better idea of what you're looking for. I'm not sure if you know much uh, of my career background, so if attached to the resume for convenience, let me know your availability, and perhaps we can arrange a time to chat in, in the coming weeks. So, that was awesome. You took the initiative to just reach out and, uh, and, and talk about this opportunity when there really wasn't even an opportunity other than just a, a mention to Flynn. How, how, did, how did you, what was it that prompted that uh, you taking the initiative on that? Well, I remember that visit vividly. And I remember Flynn came home and he started talking to me about your guys' conversation, which I obviously missed because I was taking a kid to the ER. That also hasn't changed. <laughs> but I remember he came home and he was telling me a little bit about what you guys were doing. And obviously at that point, he had committed to the consulting firm he was going to. So it wasn't something he could be uh, look look to join you guys. But he started talking to me about what you and Jocko were doing, a little bit about the book and some of the consulting you guys were doing. And it piqued my interest because 
I was, again, looking for that new mission. And so I kind of sat on it for an hour. Him and I just talked, and we weren't really talking about me applying for this job or reaching out. We were just talking about your guys' conversation. He was filling me in. And then I came back like an hour later to him, and I was like, hey, what do you think if I reach out to Leif and see if they maybe need some help? And he actually told me at the time, he's like, hey, they mentioned they needed some admin help. Maybe that's a good place to start. Uh, And I went back and forth in my head of like, do I want to go back to an admin role? Do I want to go back to that kind of role? But I was really fascinated by what Flynn had told me about your vision for the company. And it seemed like a cool opportunity to get in on the ground floor of a company and and be a part of that growth and that interests me that challenge really fascinated me so i remember reaching out and just kind of cold calling and saying hey if you you need help i'm standing by here's what i can do and maybe there's an opportunity here and you reached out the perfect opportunity too because i was uh i was definitely uh we were getting overwhelmed at that time as as we things started to pick up as much word of mouth so extreme ownership wasn't published until october 2015 so I don't think I even handed you the manuscript yet. I think that came uh, shortly thereafter. Um, but I thought that was, you reached out at the perfect opportunity, which for me was like, we need this. We definitely need some support. I, I'd worked with you before. I certainly knew that you were a, a, a squared away person who, uh, and we could use that certainly in, in the uh, the company. Um, I, I had a vision for where I wanted to go, but I certainly uh, had no idea how to get there and, and was trying to learn through the fire hose on this stuff. Um, Jocko, on the other hand, was kind of like, no, we don't need anyone. We're, we're totally good to go. So that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> that took, took a little bit of leading up the chain of command to get him convinced. Um, this is uh, – so after – th- we had talked on the phone about this, and, uh, and then there's another email exchange uh, April 20th of 2014. And uh, you said th- – and I think this kind of highlights that dis- discussion that you were having about, like, do you want to be admin? You know, you want to talk about uh, the opportunity there. was a there. Lot, of, lot of conflict there for sure. But I thought this was, I'll I'll read this section here. I realize that your immediate need is for some part-time admin support. In addition to this, as I mentioned, I am very interested in the prospect of helping you grow the company and and having a larger role down the road. Given the timing of things with our upcoming move, I think a more in-depth conversation as as to what this larger role might entail can wait a few months. Once I have a better chance... Uh, Once I have a chance to better get more familiar with the company and can, can more accurately define how I help grow the business... I, I think that's, you know, that to me really showed you were willing to take an iterative step. We always talk about iterative steps at Echelon Front. You're willing to take an iterative step. And so many people want to just ask for the world right up front. No, I need this giant equity position. I need this massive pay and compensation. You know, I need, uh, they want to negotiate paid time off or a position uh, and a title and those things. And you had a very strategic approach to this, which was, let's take a small iterative step. I know this is going to be a step down from, you were leading a big team of people at San Diego State and running these gigantic events and concerts and things that you were putting on. And yet you were willing to take a small step to take on this like part-time administrative role. Yeah, there was, there was definitely a little inner conflict because you were very clear as to what you needed. Those email exchanges as far as like, hey, this is what I have for you currently. And so I went back and forth. I'm like, okay, do I want to do that? A little bit of that ego check that I had to do. And then it was, again, what was the risk? And so there was some strategy in that because I also find, kind of felt like, okay, if I can get in at the ground floor and I can do this admin role and I can do it well and I can show the value, then it'll make it easier in a couple months to actually say, hey, Leif, I want this full-time job and I want an opportunity to grow. So there was a little strategy and even this email technique of, 
I'm I can subordinate my ego enough to step into an admin role and book travel or take client calls or send emails, whatever it is you guys needed me to do, which I don't even think we had defined at that time, with the knowledge that if I could do that really well and I could perform really well, then I've always been of the mindset that if you if you perform and you execute, the pathways are open. And I really cared about your vision for the company. And this is before I'd even read the manuscript. This is before I even understood the power of what we were gonna someday do here at Echelon Front. I had no vision or no idea that it would come to what we have today. But I knew that there was something special about what you guys were trying to do and really unique about it. And I wanted to be a part of it. And if that meant starting on the ground floor and doing the menial mundane admin tasks, I would do that. Um, and hopefully that would lead to a better relationship and an opportunity for growth. Um, and again, never could have imagined or dreamed it would get to this point. I think that's an extraordinary thing though, Jamie. It's, it's, it seems like to you, it seems like, that, well, that was obvious or that was kind of intuitive. And yet I think to most people, it's not intuitive. Most people are, and they're being told the opposite by society, by their friends, by, by peers, by no, no, you need to negotiate. You need to get everything up, uh, up front. And yet you're betting on yourself by, by knowing that, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make myself an invaluable asset to this company by working really hard, by demonstrating that uh, that I can be relied on to take things off, uh, you know, my play, Jocko's play, to 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 be a, a real asset to the company, which which then elevates you. And and, and so many people that that we work with now, where leaders get frustrated, particularly junior mm -hmm. folks, they're frustrated. I, I, they need to give me more responsibility. I, I just want to take on a greater role. And then we say things like, "Well, well." How are you doing at the small things? The, the small tasks that you are now uh, assigned, you're not actually getting those done or you're not turning them in or you're not actually getting them accomplished. So why would they give you larger things? And I think you've, you took the opposite approach and, and you'd never be where you are today if you had, uh, I, we've never even been able to hire you if you wanted to come in at the, the same salary equal what you'd made at, at, at uh, San Diego State, you know, this previous role or to have a big team of people. We just could have never even, uh, it never would, it would have been a non-starter from us from the beginning because we didn't have any, any, any means whatsoever at that point. Yeah, and I actually, you know, it, it took a little while to get over that, that iterative step you talked about. It took me a little bit to kind of reconcile that. But once I committed, I was all in. I mean, I knew, for one, that I wanted to work. I've always been the type, I love my children. But I always knew that I would be a better mom if I had something else that was special to me, that was unique to me, and that work provided me a lot of value. And I always loved the work that I did, and I always loved the challenge of what, work provided me. So I knew I always wanted to work. I also knew that I could always go back to an, a, a university or in the education system or, or get a job somewhere and, you know, I would be fine. What excited me about Echelon Front was the unique opportunity to build something. And I had never had that opportunity. And that was really exciting and challenging. But also, it wasn't an easy decision because it's not, we didn't necessarily need the money, you know, but there was the reconciliation for me that if I went somewhere else, I was going to have a salary and I was going to have some security and my childcare that I was covering to work at Echelon Front would be paid for in full. And meanwhile, I'm doing two hours a day. I'm working part-time. I'm trying to take on other jobs. I'm paying for full-time childcare, but only managing part-time work. And so that, 
you know, there was conflict there. Not conflict in whether or not this is the right decision, but that constant of like, am I doing the right thing? Or should I just cut bait and go get a job somewhere that's 40 hours a week and a little more consistent? And I remember Flynn was the one that mentioned, uh, not out of frustration, but like, hey, how long are we going to do this? Because there was a there was a disconnect between the full-time care and the part-time work and trying to piece this together. And I had told him, I was like, give me a year. I'm going to take a year and I'm going to really go all in on this. I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. I'm going to perform. I'm going to do these little tasks really well. I'm going to build relationships. I didn't even know the principles at the time, but I was focused on those elements that we teach now to leaders everywhere. And it was those elements that enabled me to build that relationship and have opportunity to grow. Um, And that never would have happened had I been stuck in my own ego of what I felt like I should be doing and what my capabilities were, uh, it took a lot to kind of step backwards and say, nope, I can do calendars. Sure, I got that all day long. Um, So once I got over that mental barrier, uh, it opened the door for what the possibilities were at Echelon Front. And credit to you guys, because at every step, when I would look to take something off your plate, you guys would allow me to. You'd, You'd instill some trust in me to do those things. And so you guys also paved the way for me to grow here because you implemented what you teach, decentralized command and giving me opportunities and giving me ownership over projects. And it just so happened that over time, those projects continue to get bigger. The initial, uh, I think your initial 1099, you know, independent contractor <laughs> contract was two two hours a day, five days a week at $25 an hour. So that's $250 a week. And uh, and that wasn't even paying your childcare, just to make that clear for, for everybody. So so you had to, I mean, that's a that's a real decision, uh, you know, point. And, and obviously, you know, your husband was raising a, uh, a valid concern there. How long are you going to do this thing? It's not even paying childcare. You know, for you to really see, hey, this is, I believe in this. I'm just going to give it a year. Let, let's give it a year and see what happens. Uh, I think it's, it shows remarkable foresight and strategic vision on your part, definitely. What really sold me was it was a couple months into joining the company and you sent me the manuscript. I think you had gone to like Office Depot and printed it. It was like this thick, you know, printed Word doc of the manuscript. And I read that manuscript for the first time. And as soon as I read that manuscript with all of the edits that would someday, you know, come, the grammar, the spelling, everything that was kind of in that initial draft, I was sold. I was so bought in because I read that and I realized I was excited about the company before and what you guys wanted to do, but I didn't really understand quite what we taught. And then I read that and it was like, I saw immediately the value and the power. I still had no idea it would do what it's done in the last nine years, but I read that and knew immediately that whatever you guys wanted me to do, I was gonna go do it because there was something really, really special and valuable about this content and this needed to be out in the world. And so I wanted to be a part of helping that, helping to accomplish that mission, even if it meant booking flights, looking at calendars and doing some of those menial tasks. And that really changed my perspective on those tasks too. All of a sudden those little menial tasks became a lot more important because it felt like I was helping you guys accomplish that mission, which was really special. It was a huge help, but even though Jocko didn't didn't think that we needed you to book travel, right? That was something that was you know very helpful to us. But let's talk about book and travel because that's uh, yeah. I think that's a great example of uh, extreme ownership in action, uh, and uh, and the power of building trust even when mistakes happen uh, based on uh, extreme ownership. 
Yep, the first flight I ever booked, Leif Babin. I I had actually approached you guys with, hey, I think I can book travel. This would be a great way for me to support. And there was definitely some hesitancy there about taking on that role. Uh, but you guys let me take that over, and I booked your first flight. And again, you know, I, it took me a little while to get past that mindset. But these things were pretty easy, menial tasks in my mind. Like, oh, this is the easiest thing ever. I think we used, like, kayak at the time. <laughs> We've, we've definitely grown. Um, but I went on and I booked your flight, threw it in your calendar, and then I just kind of forgot about it until obviously the day of your travel in which I got a very interesting phone call from Leif um, telling me that you couldn't get through TSA. And I found out pretty quickly that I had made some, I had made a pretty big mistake. I, I had won your, used your middle name, uh, which I don't know if everyone knows that, but isn't your first name. Leif isn't your first name. So I booked it under Leif Babin, and then, of course, I spelled your name wrong, which was the the, the bigger mistake because uh, they wouldn't let you through TSA. And and even more embarrassing, uh, my, my son's middle name is Leif. So I know how to spell Leif, and yet <laughs> in my haste of doing this menial task, I booked it, and I totally jacked up your travel, and now you're at risk of missing your flight. Well, that was and, – and obviously, at Ashland Front, we take we – take, being at our events very seriously we've never missed an event knock on wood this is uh something that we strive to do is be there for the clients that have hired us and uh and so i had showed up to the airport and in a rush you know i didn't have a lot of time uh, to, to make that flight and so i was trying to get to security and i really hadn't even looked at my my ticket this was like this was even like pre-check-in uh via apps I, very few people were, were using that at the time it was just you know print out hard copy so as I'm going through security, they're like, sorry, sir, your, uh, your idea doesn't match. So they sent me back. I had to go back to the gate. I'm like, oh, man, this is bad. Um, and I, so I know I'd reached out to you. And my initial reaction was some frustration at that. Oh, man, this is uh, the very first travel that Jamie booked for me, and I can't make it through security. Um, and so I called you and was like, you know, I'm trying to focus on like solutions at this point. Let's figure out if we can uh, find a, an alternative because I may not make this flight, depending on how long it's going to take me at the gate. Yeah, you called and you were like, hey, can you look at some alternate flights? And you explained what had happened. And you were being, if you were frustrated, you didn't show your hand a, a ton. Like, it wasn't very clear you were frustrated, but I could kind of tell. You were just being very direct. Like, hey, can we look for some alternate flights? I'm going to go to the gate and see if I can get it fixed. And you explained what had happened. And I got off the phone with you and I was, uh, I was actually on like a road trip. So I wasn't like anywhere near a computer. So I'm in straight panic mode. I'm in the car, like on my phone, trying to find stuff. I'm telling Flynn, I'm like super nervous because I'm like, he's going to miss his flight. This is the first flight I've ever booked for him. How they're never going to trust me to do anything again. And I'm like in straight panic. And then um, you sent me a text and you were like, hey, I got it situated. I'm going through security and I'll call you. And I was like, okay. And it felt like an hour went by. It was probably like six minutes, but you got through security and then I saw your name come across. And I had a pit in my stomach. I felt awful and I answered the phone and you were very calm and detached and I immediately having read the manuscript at this point I immediately started taking ownership for it and apologizing and you cut me off and it was the first example of extreme ownership that I witnessed in a conversation where I saw okay this is special especially when I thought about it later because you stopped me mid-sentence and you were like nope Jamie hey listen this is my fault and meanwhile, I'm thinking, like, 
no, Leif, this is really my fault. <laughs> this is totally my fault. And you proceeded to explain, hey, you booked my flight a month ago. It's the first time you booked it. And I didn't look at the details. I should have double checked that when you first sent the itinerary over. And then when I logged in last night to check in, I didn't double check those details. It would have taken two seconds to look at this and realize a mistake. And third, I didn't get to the airport and give myself enough, enough contingency to get through and, and manage particular problems that may arise like this. And that's my fault and I'm gonna fix that going forward. And I'm on the other phone and I remember like there was a pause and I was like, yeah, but no, it was really my fault, Leif. And all of a sudden, you and I are in this tug of war of ownership. And we took a situation that very easily you could have been frustrated and angry, which I, I think you probably were, but you were very detached in that moment. And you could have, you know, rightfully just been direct with me and said, hey, this can't happen again and, and gone that route. But instead, you showed me what ownership provided. And at the end of that conversation, in this weird way, I felt like you and I had gained trust with one another, even in the midst of me making a pretty big mistake on the first flight that I ever gave you. So it was just a unique perspective on my side to be experience extreme ownership firsthand and really start to wrap my head around what this mindset of ownership really looks like. I, I love the story because it, it's it, it shows the power of extreme ownership because I I had had I definitely gained trust in, in you. We gave you so much more uh, things to, to to take off our plate and the things that you took charge of going forward uh, after a mistake was made. Uh, why? Because you actually took ownership because you were implementing solutions, you know. And there was some certainly initial frustration there when I realized like, oh man, I I, I hope I'm going to make this flight. Um, but the 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 reality was like any instantaneous reaction, you know, uh, was the the within three seconds, right? As I'm thinking about it, all those things that I said were true. Like I, I absolutely should have checked it a, a month before and, and verify the name, name and everything was correct. Uh, at time date, everything I could have checked it the night before I should have showed up earlier with enough uh, time in case that, that something happened at the airport. So all those things were absolutely true. It's not just Jedi mind trick or some lip service, right? They're a hundred percent true. And you took ownership and I, I had absolute faith in you to know that you were going to make sure that nothing like that ever happened again, which you did. Nothing like that has ever happened again uh, in, you know, in the entire time and the years since that's happened. And so I think it shows the power of extreme ownership. People are so reluctant to, to want to take ownership of, of a mistake when it happens because they don't want people to lose trust in them or lose respect for them. And or, they don't have to pay the consequences. And yet uh, you, you gain respect and trust. Uh, and, and the consequences were alleviated knowing that um, we had a solution going forward and that I had absolute confidence and faith in you to, to fix those problems. And so we gave you more. We gave you more until very shortly after that, you were running everything at Echelon Front. And now our chief op operating officer that continues that, that, uh, uh, that trend because of the, the tremendous trust that, uh, that Jocko and I both have in you. Uh, and it started with, with a mistake like that. Yeah, you know, we talk a lot at Echelon Front around leadership capital. And that was the first time that I looked at that situation. I remember getting off the phone and talking through it with Leif, or with Flynn because I, I still felt so bad about that mistake. And what happened is in that conversation, had you gotten on the phone and reprimanded me or been super direct or harsh, I think that that would have absolutely been a withdrawal on both of us. You know, I would have felt like, oh man, I withdrew from you, your capital, leadership capital bank, because I made this huge mistake and vice versa, because now you're making me feel terrible for it, which I think happens a lot in, in the, the world. And yet 
in that instance, you deposited so much into my leadership capital bank that I was determined to fix that mistake and make sure it never happened again. And I left that conversation with this sense of, okay, I want to do right by life. I'm going to fix this next time. We ended up creating those info sheets. We started a new system. We brought in Concur to do our travel. We, we put some things in place at that point to fix that problem. And a lot of that was because you took ownership right out the gate. And that disarmed me from my defenses. Even though I knew this was my mistake, it's your human nature to be, you know, put up our guard when those things happen and we're ourselves and I felt myself feeling the sense of uh, of you know defensiveness and yet all of that was alleviated when you came out the gate and said hey this is my fault um, and again it was the first example that I saw of ownership it's certainly not the last here at Echelon Front I think what's cool to work for a team and for you and Jocko is that you see examples of that constantly and even throughout the nine years, we're not we're not infallible to the same challenges other organizations and companies have. But because we all hold ourselves to these high standards of ownership and the principles we teach, we're able to solve problems so much more efficiently and effectively. And that was the first example of 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 that at my time here at Echelon Front. We talk about all the time that extreme ownership is humbling but liberating. And it's it's humbling to know when you make a mistake and you screw things up that it's all your fault and you can't blame anyone else or anything else. But it's also liberating to know that everybody makes mistakes and everybody screws things up. And and all you have to do is simply take ownership and implement solutions. And, and that example is a, a great one because uh, I don't think there's any other human in the world that I have more trust in that, than you. Uh, and I know Jocko feels the same way, that you, uh, we trust you implicitly. You have a massive amount of leadership capital in the bank with us. And if you say, do this, I'm going to do it. You know, if you, you uh, and, and that goes for Jocko and everybody else on the team as well. And, and it's, it starts from mistakes that happen, taking ownership of those mistakes, and then fixing them going forward. So uh, that's, to me, is a great example of that humbling but liberating nature of extreme ownership. Uh, it stings the ego to admit it's your fault, and yet everyone makes mistakes. No one uh, is infallible, and all you got to do is simply take ownership and fix those mistakes going forward. Yeah, you could have easily just determined in that moment, hey, if she can't do these small things, like I'm going to take these things off her plate. Or hey, obviously travel's too much for you. We're going to take that off your plate. But because of that conversation of you taking ownership, me taking ownership, this back and forth, that tug of war, as I mentioned, I actually think it gained trust on both sides where you started to give me more. I think you saw that I had the capacity to take ownership. And that's that's a liberating part of what we talk about, that you're going to make mistakes, but when you own them, quickly and you actually work to solve them because I think I emailed you within 24 hours of new processes I had in place to solve that to make sure we didn't have this issue again you saw that I had the capacity to take my mistakes take ownership of them and control the outcome of how we solve those problems and you started to give me more trust and more responsibility so the next step in August of 2014 I think I'd sent you you know an email after you you came on board with us full-time in July of 2014, so nine years ago now, and uh, and I'd invited you out. We were working with uh, uh, our first big client, or what we now call our leadership development alignment program. So we had a long range contract with this client, and we were doing some work with them. And Jock and I were running a a two day. Uh, workshop with, with his team. We'd come back and revisit that every few weeks uh, to build upon uh, that training. And so I remember you flew out from uh, Washington State to, to Denver to be on stripe, site with us. What was your first impressions of, of Jocko? <laughs> um, so I remember... 
I remember you texting me that morning and you were like, hey, we're in the lobby. And this is the first time I'm going to meet Jocko in person. I had, I had communicated, I think, in some emails with Jocko, but I pretty much only dealt with you in that time frame. So it was a couple months into working at Echelon Front and I hadn't really talked to him much. I don't think I'd ever talked to him on the phone for sure. And so I met you in the lobby and you walked over, you made the introduction and then you had to go take care of something with the front desk. So you left. So it was like a quick like, hi, Jocko, meet Jamie. Jamie, meet Jocko. I'm out. And I'm standing there. And obviously Jocko is an, an initially intimidating person. He's not a warm person. <laughs> I like the term that Dave Burke says, which is he refers to Jocko as a silverback gorilla. And that's kind of how I felt the first time I met him. Like he's a very just initially intimidating person. I also had never spoken with him. And as you know, Jocko's not initially one for small talk. So I think he like asked me a question and we sat there and I remember thinking like I was so uncomfortable. Like I was like, it, it's not that he was rude by any means or unprofessional. Just I I guess the word for it was guarded. He was a little guarded when I first met him. It took a little while for him to warm up to me. And I remember when he actually warmed up, which was through the hell week of the book launch yeah. of Extreme Ownership. So uh, when that the book was launched in October 2015, and you came to our very first uh, – uh, actually, Jocko and I had done an event together and signed some books in Palm Desert. So this is really even the week prior to publication. We'd had some, had some books shipped out there before they were even available. And then the very the second event, you flew out to meet us in Vegas – uh, and so from there, we went, we spoke at this dual event in Vegas, uh, and then we flew to New York, and it was just back to back to back to back media, almost no sleep, uh, kind of what we called our uh, our publication week, uh, hell week. And at the end of that, after jumping from event to event to event to event to event, I remember you, know, you had been been there on time, had everything organized, got us where we needed to go, you know, helped and supported in so many different ways. What we you know we call cover move, uh, and you really exhibited that. And uh, I remember Jocko just kind of looking looking at me and saying. Jamie's all right. Are you, there's some <laughs> comment like that, like which was quite which the is compliment. the best comment he's exactly. ever given me. Yeah. <laughs> She's all right. That trip was crazy. We we met up in Las Vegas, and then we went straight to New York, and we were like we were on a budget. So I was staying at a friend's house, if you remember, like in Chelsea. But I was commuting back and forth. I wasn't very familiar with the subway system. I was getting lost left and right. But we were up in the morning for news shows at like 3 a.m., which means I. I had to be out the door by like two to get there and then we would run all morning and then we'd get like a three hour break in the afternoon and I'd jet back to my friend's apartment and like crash for two hours wake back up and add it again and it was like that for like five days straight it was total chaos so fun one of my favorite memories but it was definitely it was definitely a gut check <laughs> really good introduction and I think it was it was about a month after the book came out almost to the date where I started getting calls and I think you and I had a conversation and it went from, okay, part-time to 40 hours a week. You brought me on as a full-time employee at that point. Um, and yeah. What's cool about that is uh, from the iterative step, like initially Jocko was like, we don't need to hire anyone. We can book our own travel, you know? And so I had to lead up the chain of command. I was like, Hey man, this would be a great, great benefit if we just had – think if we had someone to answer emails yeah. while we're in the middle of doing something, you know, teaching or training. Um, wouldn't that be helpful? He's like, yeah, I guess that would be helpful. So, so we made this iterative step. And then after you proved yourself through this crazy time running around and, and you know, you, you – 
you had the schedule, you maintained the schedule, you brought books, you had, you, you, you just, you were contributing in a, in a you, were, you were making a positive contribution uh, at every turn. Uh, and that's what enabled Jocko to say, oh yeah, yeah, we can bring her on full time. So it was, it was a fulfillment of that idea. Uh, and very quickly then you, it got so busy that you started, you had to hire someone else and then you had to hire someone else. And as you grew your team, um, you know, that was that, that iterative step toward this larger role that you want to be a part of. Like you, uh, you prove that based on, uh, the trust that we had in you as you took more things off our plate and you ran with stuff and you, you built processes and, and, uh, and created these things from scratch, which was, which was awesome. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I look at our, like, I was always really close with you. We had the prior relationship. We had kind of worked together. You had a relationship with Flynn. Flynn served with you. So I always had the relationship with you. When I look back on the, that time frame, which was, again, a whirlwind, I realized that at the time, I didn't know Jocko. I didn't know his personality. Now that I know him, when he goes to a muster and he meets people, he is super sociable. And people always talk about how impressed they are that he's not just super intense all the time, but he's actually very funny and he's very good in meeting people. But I, what I've learned about him is that if you're going to be in his circle and you're going to be you know, a part of Echelon Front or a part of the circle that he runs with, he's going to give you a little more time. He's There's a little bit of a test there for him. He wants to see if you, if you pass that test because I think – what I've seen is that he, if you're in his circle, he feels now responsible for helping you reach your potential, for helping you be successful, for helping you win. And so he wants to make sure that you're going to live up to that before he invests in you. And so it took a little time to, to chip away at that. But between the book, um, the book launch and the experiences that we had leading up to that, I mean, e- even before the book launch, the first time I met Jocko, again, like we had the kind of weird little uh, – small talk in the lobby and then a couple months later if you remember we were at the book publishers meeting before the launch of the book and I had come prepared I'm trying to provide value I'd come prepared with all these ideas on social media and he kind of shut that down he's like we don't need social media which is I don't do social media (laughs) yeah we don't need yeah I don't do social media which was a back-end iterative step and leading up the chain between me you and your wife who finally convinced him that we needed it Uh, and I think we actually got all of that behind the scenes he didn't even know we were doing it I think you launched it based on your conversation with Jenna right yep Jenna convinced me and I was like all right you're right I got all the names and I just kept them private and I was like I'll just keep these in my back pocket in case they needed them and of course he went on Tim Ferriss and then Joe Rogan and and the book came out and all of a sudden it was like oh we need social media which is crazy now because he's obviously very good at that uh but all of those little things led to kind of proving myself to Jocko and then we went through the book launch the book came out and that really launched a relationship with both of you in building this company that was, again, not like anything I had envisioned. And and the growth of what you guys enabled me to take part in and take ownership of was far outside of what I had planned for. So from going from this part-time admin to getting an opportunity to really run this company and start hiring people and building out teams, um, it was just an incredible journey. And it happened very, very fast after that you know, the first year was a little slow, and then the book launch happened, and very quickly we found ourselves in a different place than we were, you know, even two months prior. Well, I think what's what's remarkable about you, Jamie, is that I I've I've loved watching you grow as a leader, and, and to to see how you've taken these principles that we teach and 
implemented them in your 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 world in your life uh and in, and built them into the culture of the team that that you've grown it, it's uh i mean we have 40 employees now at echelon front and dozens of independent contracts we work with all the time uh and you you really live and breathe these principles and everything you do and i think that that drives the success of, of this organization and uh so you're you've you've gone from that part-time admin assistant to 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 now a leader in your own right of a, of a significant team that's having some massive impact yeah, but you guys gave me the playbook. I mean, all I I knew all I needed to do to be successful here was to follow the rules and the principles of extreme ownership. You gave me the playbook that first time reading the manuscript. I read that from this perspective of just trying to understand what we do here. Um, but as I reread re it, which I've read it multiple times, um, I started to see how it would play out as I built a team here at Echelon Front. What does this look like as I hire people and start bringing people on the team? How does this look like at home with my kids? I remember very vividly going through an issue with my oldest, um, some challenges, and I had mentioned something to, I think it was you on the phone. It was you or Jocko, one of you, and I was mentioning you mentioning some of the challenge I was having and the comment was made of like, hey, these these same principles apply. And I was like, gosh, dang it. And I read the book again. But when I got to the third part of application to business, I wrote down for myself application to home. And I started looking at how these principles applied at my home life. So I've been successful here at Echelon Front because you guys gave me a playbook and I just follow it to a T. Honestly, the pathway to success here was simply following not only the playbook you guys provided, but following in your example that you guys set. I think it's really cool that people get to see you in the public eye. And I think it's easy for people on the outside to look at both you and Jocko in the public forum, the public setting, and to question whether or not that's authentic behind the scenes. And I've worked with you now for nine years and I can verify that that is authentic and sincere. And what you guys talk about, you do and you put into action. So I, that made a big difference for me in wanting to help grow this company as far and wide as we possibly can because I saw an example of that through our co-founders, you and Jocko. Well, that means a lot to me, Jamie. I, I think about all the things I got to work on all the time, right? It's uh, uh, it's it's very humbling to think that you know uh, all that I have to improve, and it seems like the more I learn about leadership, the more I realize like I I get so much more to work on, uh, so many things to improve on. Um, one of the things that I love about you is as you've taken and implemented these things yourself, and you talked about what we do, and you got to experience it and see these stories of impact. Uh, and then do these things yourself. You're leading with these these principles. You're leading with the laws of combat. You're taking extreme ownership. You're implementing the mindsets of victory with your team uh, and, and building that into the culture of, of your team uh, and across Echelon Front. It, it, it became apparent a few years ago that we need Jamie to actually share this with other people and, and that your perspective was very valuable. And I think initially your response to that was kind of like, hey, I'm not comfortable doing that. I want to be behind the scenes. Uh, and then you also talked about, well, you're not a combat veteran. And yet what's been so powerful is that it's coming from you, not having come out of the SEAL teams or having combat experience under your belt, but but taking these same things and, 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 and demonstrating the power of the principles that we teach, learned in combat, but how they apply it, you know, in, in your professional and personal life. Uh, I think it, you, you've been able to open a lot of people's eyes with, with a whole new perspective. Yeah, it was right before the Australian muster. And it was brought up, we were taking a pretty small crew to Australia. And so 
this the the run of show we had with all of the instructors we had at that time was being condensed in a little bit so there's some room in the agenda and somebody had brought up hey why don't we get jamie up there you maybe maybe you and jocko combined effort of asking me to speak at this muster and i my my initial reaction was like oh heck no i'm not doing that i did not want to be it was so far outside of my comfort zone. And I grew up singing, I, like being on stage is not the problem. Speaking on stage or teaching these leadership pr- principles was not something I was initially on board with. Partly because I looked around at my peers and my colleagues who were these seasoned combat veterans and I had a real sense of imposter syndrome of how can I add value to what we teach at Echelon Front when standing alongside this group of men this group of men, these combat warriors. And so I really struggled with that. Uh, but as I thought more about that and I talked to people and I got guidance from my colleagues and you guys gave me encouragement, I started to realize that the people we were teaching these principles to were also not like you. They were a lot more like me. They were just trying to understand these principles so they can improve in their professional world so they can improve at home with their spouse with their kids and they just wanted to get better they just wanted to understand how to lead effectively and so I realized that while I didn't serve in combat I had a unique perspective to taking these combat leadership principles and helping people understand them outside of the battlefield components Uh, and so I got out of my comfort zone and I think I practiced that first brief about 500 times (laughs) before I went up on stage and I remember being in the in and I think every I think every instructor has had this experience with you because before we go on stage we do it in front of you and Jocko (laughs) (laughs) and it's like the worst thing ever and I remember thinking afterwards like there's no way they're gonna let me go out there and do this and uh, of course you guys you guys had more faith in me than I did you guys let me go up there and it wasn't it wasn't the crowd it wasn't the people it was being on stage and seeing <laughs> Leif Babin and Jocko Willink, Dave Burke, J.P. Donnell sitting right there, stage right, that caused me so much anxiety going into that. But I had so much fun and I got a lot of really great feedback and I realized that there was a perspective here that I could share that was different. And I think in truth, people listen to you guys speak and you guys are Navy SEALs, Top Gun pilots, the best at what you do. And sometimes that seems unattainable and so what I can provide is a perspective of this is attainable this leadership these leadership principles can absolutely be applied in every capacity of your life and if you do it right you'll see the impact in every little facet so I really took that first uh, opportunity and it's been cool to see that grow over time uh, to what I'm doing now which is teaching this stuff all the time and I absolutely love it. I remember as we talked about, you know, putting you up on the stage, I was very excited about that. I thought this is awesome. The one concern I had, if you remember our discussion around, I was like, I was like, Jamie does everything. Like she runs the entire company. Like if we have her out on the road as an instructor, who's going to run the company? Uh, And it's, it's a, uh, what's awesome is that you have created a culture of decentralized command where you trained up leaders on your team to step into your role and fill that, uh, you know, director of operations role and run those things and brought in uh, folks and built that team so that now you can not only step into the, you know, up, up into the COO role, but also be out there on the road as, as a leadership instructor um, uh, teaching these principles, which is it's, it's been a, an amazing uh, transition to see that happen. Yeah, the comment was made once on like an ops call where someone was like, hey, 
we we can run a muster. It was during COVID when there's a lot of cancellations and things happening. And somebody made the comment of, hey, if there's two people we can't have at a muster, like miss a muster or get sick, it's Jocko and Jamie. And I remember in the in the instant being like, actually, that's not true. I don't have to be in a muster anymore. I could not go to this next muster coming up in Orlando and the team's got it on lock. They've totally dialed in. That team has stepped up and they're running everything. So to your point, decentralized command works because that first muster, I was running around literally doing everything. And now I show up and I'm just kind of in my team's way. They're kind of like, hey, can you move? We're trying to get some stuff done here. So it's been really cool to see these principles play out here at Echelon Front. Um, It helps me be committed to staying out of their way and letting them run with it. Because when I do, they freaking crush it. So um, that's not even true anymore. And uh, and I, I just feel the the utmost of confidence in their abilities to do those things without me. Well, that's a testament of good leadership. And I think people miss that, right? When we work with people, sometimes you, you work with a, uh, a tremendous leader that's really driving the success of the organization. And as we said, excellent front leaders make more leaders. Like you, you should be training up the leaders uh, uh, below you in the chain of command so that they can step up in your role so that, that, uh, and and that is that that's something that all of us have to do. And I think some leaders miss that. It's it feeds your ego, right? When it's all on you. Uh, I know it was hard for me to let go of some of those roles uh, at Echelon Front as you know as the uh, the managing partner that was kind of running all the day to day stuff. And as we transitioned more of that stuff to you, and you took more stuff off my plate. Jocko and I even had a conversation about that uh, a few years ago, where he was like, "Hey, uh, when I was having such a hard time letting go of some stuff, he was like, "Hey, do you do you like doing that?" And as I thought about that, uh, I, I, I had to answer, no, actually, I don't like doing that. It's like, cool, we'll just, just let Jamie, let her team do that. I was like, okay, that makes sense. But it's so hard for, for us sometimes to let go of things. Um, you know, it feeds our ego. It's kind of like, oh, we just stick to the things that we know. And um, every leader should be trying to work themselves out of a job. That's the goal so that you can get promoted up the chain just as you have. And, uh, and you've, you, you're a tremendous uh, example that, that this stuff works. It is a really hard thing to do, though. Like, that's not easy, uh, be, especially when you feel really invested, when you have a sense of, hey, I helped build this. That's that ego part that you're talking about. But I realize the more that I do that, the more that I'm not setting my team up for success. And also, if I had maintained back in 2019 that, no, I can't speak at the muster because I've got all these other responsibilities. That might be the initial ego hit of the team can't handle it if I'm going to be out for that time that I need to speak on stage. But the reality is, is that I never would have had the opportunity to grow in my own capabilities and provide a different type of value to the company, um, which has transcended what I thought possible. I mean, I spoke at that one muster and I thought, okay, we'll see if I get to do this again. The fact that I get to do this every week on the academy or every week talking to clients or every muster is beyond what I thought possible. Um, And the only way I can do that is by letting go. I remember Jocko said it was at, it was an executive leadership team meeting we had a couple years ago. And he said this phrase, I can only do what only I can do. And it was this idea for him that there are certain things that only Jocko can do in his role at Echelon Front. And so he's only going to do those things. And that actually sets the rest of us up for success to take on the other things and manage that for him. 
And I think the same goes for you. There's things that you bring to the table here at this company that I can't do, that Dave can't do. So if we're all implementing this idea of decentralized command, we're relinquishing what we can to the rest of the team, we can be more strategic in providing value to the company that only each of us can offer the company. So it's been really cool from the beginning to watch that play out with the two of you and then what it's allowed me to do as I've kind of let go and realize that we've got a team of people here that understand these principles. They're, they're running the same playbook and they're having success in doing that. And that sets me up for success to, to actually let go and let them run with it. And you, as you do that, people are going to do things that maybe not exactly how you would do it. And that's, that's one of the hardest things is that 80% solutions. Like you come up with an 80% solution. Yeah. It might be a little bit different than how I might think about it or might, might want to do it or have, have been doing it. And yet I need to let you run with that. I need to let you run with that. And what I found is that as I've let you run with those things, your, your solutions were a lot more effective than, than mine were in most cases. So, uh, I think that's, uh, that's, that's what true decentralized command looks like. Definitely. Yeah, and that's the same with my team now, too. It's very hard, especially when you've created processes, you've created systems to let go. But I've realized the more that I do that, the more that the people on our team have better ideas than I do. And partly because back when I had to handle it all, when there was just me or maybe two other people on the team, you, you're doing so many things, you can't give any one thing your attention Whereas now we have people that are managing things at this organization and they're looking at it and it's all they're thinking about. So their ability to think of a process or a plan or a solution within their scope of work is so much better than me, who's got a million different things that I'm trying to manage, coming up with a quick Band-Aid fix. They're coming up with way better efficiencies, way better ways of doing things. Their plans are always better in the, in, in, in the mindset that they're going to be the ones executing them. So... If I don't have anything to do with it, they're going to be committed because it's their plan. They're going to go run with it. So that's been a lesson I've learned at Echelon Front to, to let go. What are, what are some other areas that you've seen the impact of the principles that we teach in, in your life? At home, I'm a mom of three. I consider that to be my greatest leadership responsibility, also my greatest leadership challenge, because at home, obviously, we're dealing with high levels of emotion because these are our kids. This is our spouse. We also deal with a very uh, heightened level of ego, and so it's much harder to check your ego at home. And so I started realizing early on that if I wanted to be effective at leading my family, I needed to apply these principles if not more, at home with my family. And so I've seen an incredible uh, growth in my ability as a mom, as a partner, to be effective in, in applying these principles. So I, I've seen it at every capacity. And it's cool because I feel like there is no greater gift I can give my children than an understanding of ownership. I, I, I truly believe that if we teach that at a very young age, which starts first and foremost with me setting the example, but also the way I talk to them, the way that I communicate, the opportunities I take to take ownership in situations with them is such a gift to set them up for success so that they don't run in the same mistakes I did where they're making excuses, casting blame, because that's, that's just a bad path. And if I can give them this gift of ownership and help them understand how to take ownership of their problems and find solutions, that's all I care about as a parent, that I can set my kids up for success beyond me. And to do that, these principles are the pathway to doing that successfully. It's so hard to do that on the home front. You know, you're so emotionally connected with, you know, your, your, your spouse, your kids. And I think for me, it's really a chance for me to detach 
put my emotions in check when I'm getting spun up about kids getting crazy or people not being ready to get out the door or, or talking disrespectfully. Those are things where I, I can get spun up very quickly and I have to take a step back, calm myself down. And instead of taking the direct approach to ask, ask earnest questions to help them see that what they're doing right now is not going to help them. And, uh, I, uh, I've, I've been trying this with my, my oldest, who's now eight, and it's, uh, it's a challenge, but it's, it, it works. It's it not easy. Works. I remember so vividly where I saw this play out was I, yeah, I have three kids, and you mentioned getting your kids out the door on time is, is, a, is an effort. Sometimes, you know, it feels like combat. And, uh, or what do I assume combat feels like? But there was one particular day, it was a couple years ago, and I was trying to get my kids out the door, and I had somewhere to be. So I, my, I was heightened emotion because I had somewhere to be too. So I was feeling stressed because we were running late. And we got in the car, and needless to say, I was not very detached. I had not done a good job, and I was kind of barking at my kids, kind of nagging at them. I was really frustrated. And we got in the car, and all I could hear in my head was like, you teach us for a living, you teach us for a living. And it was that recognition and quite frankly, my ego on the other side, it was like, no, those kids should know better. Like, you know, that I was wrestling with. And I ended up at a stoplight. I decided I was going to take ownership, which feels a little odd with your kids because you're the parent. And, you know, I don't think it's natural for parents to oftentimes apologize to their kids. It's kind of like, hey, do what I say. And, and that's how it is. But I took that opportunity in the car with my kids and I use the framework that we teach and I identify the problem. We're going to be late. Hey, this is a problem. I identified the impact of them. Hey, as a result, I'm not very detached. I got frustrated with you. I lost my cool. And listen, guys, this is totally my fault. And I explained why. I should have gotten up earlier. I should have had myself ready. I should have woken you guys up earlier so that I could better support you and we could get out the door on time. And we had this conversation and I took ownership. And at the conclusion of that, when I offered some solutions, my oldest son, he kind of, you know, heavy sigh. And he's like, no, mom, it's my fault because you told me to get in the car, but I was finishing this project. And then my middle son was like, no, mom, it's my fault because... I couldn't find my shoes. And then my daughter kind of looked around the car and she did the whole like, yeah, it's, it's all your fault. Uh, but she's learning. And in her defense, she was ready to go. But I remember in that moment, like, wow, I just used this leadership framework that we teach to our clients with my 12, 10, and 8-year-old. And it worked. And they modeled the behavior back to me. And my part of that was my intention was not to get them to do that. I actually didn't think they'd respond that way. I was not expecting that. My intention was I really, truly believe this was my fault. Something as simple as getting out the door on time. This is my fault. And by the way, I can now own how we solve this moving forward. And so it was a cool example that we teach this stuff. You have to be ready to take ownership in these really big ways when problems arise. But in that moment, I realized the way we do that is we practice taking ownership in all these little tiny examples in our life. Something as simple as getting my kids out the door. So now I actually make it, this challenge to look for those opportunities all the time with my kids to model ownership, meaning that I'm taking ownership with them all the time. I'm asking earnest questions to help them see where they can take more ownership, whether they miss a homework assignment or something goes wrong at school. I can adjust the way I communicate with them so that everything is pushing them towards this mindset of ownership, which is a total game changer and a gift that I can give my kids. So not that it's easy because, man, my kids – 
especially that oldest, they know, they know how to chip away at my patience. And I think he makes it his goal sometimes to, to see if he can get me off that cliff. Uh, and sometimes, unfortunately, he succeeds. But for the most part, I am looking regularly for opportunities to take ownership. And as a result of that, I'm better prepared to take ownership in other capacities in my life when big problems arise or we have issues here at Echelon Front because of those times I take to practice it with them. You get better with it every time you practice it. I think that's something that, you know, I, I gotta, I, I've certainly stumbled and, and fall short of the mark all the time. And yet, uh, it's something that we can improve and, and it becomes habit, right? When you, when you're thinking about it and you're doing it all the time and embracing those opportunities to, to train, uh, on the home front. And it's amazing that it works even with kids. Um, it works everywhere. Yeah, but what you said, what you just said is exactly right. What I always talk about with clients is we teach ownership as this mindset. And I think it starts initially as cultivating a mindset around ownership, cultivating this ability to look at a problem and say, okay, this is my fault. How can I take ownership of solving this problem? But if we do that regularly, this mindset starts to become a behavior, starts to become our reaction, starts to become ultimately our instinct for how to solve problems so that the second problems arise, my instinct for how I'm going to solve that problem is ownership. How can I take ownership? What, what caused this problem? What could I have done better? What can I do better next time? And I'm asking myself those questions, which means I'm more quickly and effectively able to come up with solutions. So that is the goal for any leader. If you're starting off with this mindset, you have to start by just asking yourself that question, how can I make this my fault? And then if you really practice that over time, this ownership piece can become this instinct. And that's where I think people see this incredible shift in their ability to quickly and effectively solve problems. And you've gotten to witness that over the course of the last nine years. I mean, for most of that time, you have been the point of contact that, that is engaged directly with clients. Uh, and so you've seen some pretty extraordinary stories of impact. Thousands and thousands. I can't even count the number of whether it was emails or letters or posts on social or pictures or meeting people and hearing their stories of examples of these what we call stories of impact. And part of that was Jocko has said once a long time ago that part of a company's culture needs to be you know, you build that culture by propagating the story of that organization. And for us, that's the stories of impact. It's the examples and stories we get from people of ways they applied these principles and the outcome. And what's cool is that we, you guys wrote the book about business, really how the application of business, how these principles apply in the professional setting. And I don't know if it was a surprise to you. It was certainly a surprise to me that very shortly after the book came out, we started getting feedback on, I stopped drinking. I fixed my relationship with my father. I started taking ownership of A, B, C, D, and, and so on. And I, we started to get these examples and I started to realize, man, you guys wrote a business book, but this is changing people's lives in every capacity. Um, and that's been a really special part of working here is getting to see that. And some of the stories we've seen are just unbelievable. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing when you, you, you hear those things. And, and no, I didn't really anticipate that. I mean, it was, you know, combat example, principle, application of business. And we thought about this as being a, a, a business book um, that could help, help leaders in the business world. And yet, yeah, when people tell you, hey, this book saved my marriage. You know, I, I was blaming my spouse. And now all of a sudden, I'm, I, I took ownership and, and we fixed these problems. And now we're, we're doing well as a result. Uh, those kind of life-altering things um, that people, you see how much better people are, how much, how much everyone around them is better as a result of it too. And I think, 
you know, I know you, you, you get the, the emails and you get to, in, you know, interact and talk to people who have been promoted multiple times or had opportunities where uh, people have reached out to them at a, at a new company and they've stepped into a huge leadership role and, and they're, they're doing well as a result of implementing the principles that we teach. Um, and it's, it's amazing to get a chance to see that. Yeah, I remember really early on, because at that point, we had seen a lot on social, we had seen a lot in emails. But the first real example of this I remember seeing that was kind of in person was at Muster 3 in Austin. And up until that point, you had definitely had people that had come up to you guys and shared with you guys examples of how these things had changed their life. But I got to witness this special occasion where uh, a young lady, a young woman, drove to our muster, was not registered, and just kind of showed up with the book, uh, just wanting to hopefully meet you guys. And we captured photos of her. Her name's Katie. She's actually now our HR director. So kind of cool example of the power of relationships. But she showed up unannounced, kind of just hoping she could get a quick signature from you guys. And we captured photos, and she's in tears. And she described to you guys how the book had saved her marriage. And such a cool example of, again, outside of the business world, her and her husband were on the brink of divorce. They had two young boys. You know, they were headed down a path that so many so many find themselves on, unfortunately, um, especially in the SEAL teams. And yet they both decided to read this book and apply these principles at home with their family. And it's so cool, fast forward to now she's our HR director. We get to see her apply these principles in every capacity. They were able to salvage not only their marriage, but their family. I think they just celebrated 18 years of marriage, which is incredible. Um, all because they stopped blaming one another and they started to take ownership for themselves and that example to me always stood out um, and it's one of many uh, that we've seen but that was the first in-person example that I saw where I saw the real impact of what we were doing here it's uh, that was a powerful one I'll never forget that and uh, and it's amazing that that Katie is now a part of uh, of our team uh, and, and, a, and a tremendous asset for echelon front um, but uh, I'll never forget that. That was one that really just the, the emotional conversation that we had and, uh, and her thanking me and Jocko and giving us credit. And yet we don't, we don't deserve the credit because the people that deserve the credit are the ones who take and implement the stuff. We can share lessons learned with them, but when you take and implement the stuff to solve a problem, you take ownership of that problem, you get that problem solved you deserve the credit for that. It's, it's, you, we, we can share some, some lessons learned with you, but you actually have to take an implement. That's the hard part. So, um, that was the fact that she felt compelled to come share that with us was really, um, really a tremendous, uh, a powerful moment that I'll never forget. And it opened my mind up to just how these principles continue to translate in every aspect of people's lives. Definitely. Yeah, and again, that's one example of so many. Uh, we had a recent one, if, and I, I love this story, but our Wes, who does our audiovisual, uh, just one of the best guys. He showed up at the first muster that we hired them for. He had the shirt on that said, you know, I give free hugs. And just one of those guys, he takes ownership in everything he does. They run this AV. They run a tight ship. They keep it on lock. When problems come up, they take ownership right away. And they're incredible to work with. But I remember after it was muster, mid-COVID, we were in Orlando, and he came up after the show, and he was like, you know what? I sat back this muster, and I've been listening to you guys for the past couple of years, and I realize I'm taking ownership of everything else in my life 
except for myself. I'm not taking ownership of my health. I'm not taking ownership of myself. I'm not leading myself or setting the right standards. And he made a commitment to lose 100 pounds. And I promised him because he had this dream of someday being in front of the curtain. He always works behind stage. That if he lost 100 pounds, he could come out at a muster and we would you know, have him come out front of stage, front of curtain. And he did it. And to your point, he did it not because of the principles we taught. He did it because he decided in that moment he was going to take ownership. And he started making those changes. And he was the one that put in the work, put in the effort. And he came out on stage to a standing ovation. And what's so cool about that story and so many of these stories is that no one takes these principles, or at least that I've seen, a lot of people take these principles, they apply it in their life, they see the impact. And then what's so cool is because of the outcome for them, they start looking for ways to help other people. So in the case of Wes, he actually got certified as a health coach and started helping other people down the same path, same journey that he was on. And those examples are are, are incredible to me. Um, I will never forget, and I think you'll remember this one, uh, we were, actually, it was I think it was you. Um, you were on site with a client who shared, after working with them for a while, and we can keep the names private, but uh, you guys have been working with them for a while and you guys sat around a conference table and he shared the story about his son. Do you remember that one? I do. That was a that was a tough one. And you came back and you shared the story with me and we've been working with this client for a while and it came came to find out, he found out about the book and, and really the book had an impact on him during a really challenging time in his life where he had come home with his young son. He had taken a nap. His son was down napping. And when he woke up, he found that his son had gone out to their garage and fallen asleep in the car in the hot, in, in the hot Texas heat and um, didn't survive. And I remember you telling me about this and like my heart aching because I can't even fathom what that would be like and the guilt that he must have felt and probably continues to feel. And yet in that really dark place, he had people counting on him. He has, two, he has other children. He has a wife. He has a company that was relying on him. And in that darkness – it was reading the book and taking on that ownership. And that's that's a hard one when you have to take ownership of the death of your child is unfathomable. And yet he took ownership of that situation. He found a path forward. He ended up writing a book to talk about his story and help other people down that dark path and how you find the light, how you find any ounce of good in that situation. Um, you know, those are the more extreme examples, but they're – they're countless. And those things are always the things that remind me of what our real purpose here is. Because if we can help people in those situations take ownership of their life and see the impact that we've we've had a chance to witness, um, we need to get that to as many people as possible. No doubt. No doubt. And that's the mission of Echelon Front. And that's something that you have been behind since the, the very beginning. I think even before we understood how impactful that mission really, really was across every aspect of everyone's lives. Uh, and uh, that was, I'll never forget that example. That is one that is deeply ingrained in me um, and puts all my problems certainly in perspective, you know, but for, for that dad to be able to take ownership of that situation, lead himself and his family out of that and share his lessons learned and his pain with others to, to help them, you know, through, through challenging times. Uh, that's an extraordinary example. I think that's what all of these stories that we've collected over the years uh, do for me. It's a reminder for me to keep all of my excuses at bay because the, 
the things that people are dealing with, the things that people have had to overcome, the examples that we've seen are a constant reminder to me that I have nothing to complain about. My problems and my challenges are nothing compared to what people out there are dealing with. And what's so empowering to me is their examples of taking ownership in the hardest of situations, taking ownership of those things, and then owning how they respond and essentially owning the outcome of those situations, even when bad and terrible things happen. It's a constant inspiration to me. I get to learn alongside them through their stories and their examples. And that that's why I care so much about what we call the stories of impact. We share it amongst our team when we get feedback from people. I love to see in the academy sessions, the sit reps and examples where people are giving an update on how they applied something that they learned and the outcome of that. All of that is a constant reminder to me of what we're doing here and what the real mission is. Um, so I'm, I, I, I'll take them all. If you've got a story of impact out there, send it. We want to see it because it keeps us motivated to keep doing the work that we're doing. It's a great reminder, uh, certainly, and I think it's easy for any of us to get down in the in the in the weeds on things. And and when you're in the grind of of you know a workload, uh, it's 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 sometimes hard to take a step back and detach and see that bigger picture of uh, of the impact of what you're doing. And we talk to leaders about this all the time, and yet. Uh, I know I suffer from this too, where I, I can have the same thing happen for me. But when we hear those stories, um, it's a great reminder for the impact for what we do. You're, you know, you're talking about those uh, academy live sessions that we do every week, and uh, I love that you're you're on almost all of those, Jamie. And I know uh, when you're not traveling, I know you're going to be on those things, listening in, learning, uh, and your contributions are always so powerful. To that too, because, like we said, there are people that just say, well, you know. I, yeah, I understand, Leif, but you were a SEAL or you, you have this combat experience or, you know, your voice sounds like Batman, so they're not going to listen to me, you know, in that situation. And yet you always provide this this uh, really powerful perspective that opens people's minds. And so many of those sit reps in there are thanking you specifically for something that you shared or a perspective that you gave uh, someone and uh, and how you kind of opened their mind about how they could take ownership or how they could solve a problem or what they needed to do to take the principles that we teach and solve a problem through leadership. And it's, uh, it's really cool to see that. And the sit reps that come in and the, in the chats, you know, the situation report or update that, uh, of, of, Hey, thank you for sharing that with me three weeks ago. I took and implemented that solution we talked about and now it made all the difference and, and everything's going well as a result. We got that problem solved. I love the Academy sessions that, that, was the greatest gift COVID gave Echelon Front <laughs> because we very rapidly, as a lot of businesses did, we had to figure out how to continue serving our clients. Up until that point, 98% of the work that we did was in person. And I don't know that any of us believed you could be effective at teaching what we teach in a virtual setting. And then COVID hit and we very quickly had to innovate and adapt and come up with a new way. And we started running the academy. And early in COVID, we were running those three times a week, three times a week. We we were on there live talking about leadership and doing open Q&A. And I found it to be so valuable for me because I got to learn. I got to learn from my colleagues, my peers, my leaders. I got to hear from other people in the chat, their feedback. And you started to see them take the principles and be able to communicate that effectively when someone has a question. I love the Academy. Even if I'm traveling, I'll try to join in and just listen in, even if I can't come off mute, because I find it to be so valuable. And the training that is offered is, is 
out of this world. So I join for that reason. And when it makes sense and I'm a little more detached or maybe has a have a different perspective than my peers, I'll add some insights there. And it's been really cool to be a part of that community that's growing rapidly. And and again, it's it's amazing training for the Echelon Front staff. So I will never miss a session if I'm home and available. <laughs> I'm the same way. It's it's something I learn every time, you know, on there. And uh, for your perspective, it's so valuable, though, that if you don't have your video off, we're going to call on you to be like, I know Jamie's got some great perspective on this. And if you're in the middle of doing something, you're just kind of listening in uh, and not prepared to maybe comment. It's I know you've you've learned uh, that you've got to keep that video off. Or we're going to call on you to uh, to share that that perspective. That's the signal. Uh, just keep keep the video off, and they won't call. I've I've told you before. I've made the mistake where I was like eating lunch, and then I come off. The camera, I put my camera on just to like rejoin the group and and whoever's teaching will be like, oh, Jamie came off camera. What do you have to say? And I'm like, oh, um, what question are we on? <laughs> but uh, no, I joined everyone. I love those sessions so much. And what's cool is from that, you know, again, we had to pivot during COVID. So this really cool opportunity came from that, which then transcended into how we serve other clients, like our leadership development and alignment clients, our longer term consulting clients. Again, COVID hit and all those in-person sessions that we had got shut down. And so we were able to find value in teaching these things virtually. So that was one really cool lesson for us that then translated to, okay, we can continue to serve these clients and complete these contracts and have impact. And we can do that virtually. And to now where we're back in person, which I love, but we can be really effective at follow-up and continued efforts and sustainment with our clients because we can now do virtual follow-ups, which we had never considered before, which is much more cost-effective, much more budget-friendly, but also allows us to give greater impact because we can go on-site and do a training and then do a two-week or a three-week follow-up virtually. And it just improves alignment, improves uh, learning and understanding of how to apply these principles effectively. So that effort has been awesome. And the repetition for those of us that are instructing is invaluable because we get to run these sessions all the time or be on the academy. So much of our new content has come from the academy, whether it was you or Jocko or Dave or someone on our team coming prepared with a new idea because if you're running three sessions a week for a year and then multiple years, I guess at this point, you're bound to have new concepts come up. Although we always stick to the core. We're always going to stick to the extreme ownership principles. There's new ideas that come about, like our relationships framework is a great example that came out of that effort. And so I get to learn and take these things back to the clients that I'm serving. So it's been a really cool effort. And from that, we got to enter into some new worlds, which was first responders and women, which has been really cool. It's uh, it's awesome. I think what you've done with the Women's Assembly too is, is extraordinary, and having so many first responders on there that we do this those monthly free calls. Uh, and I, I want to talk about the Women's Assembly in, in, in some detail. Um, but before we do that, like I was just I'm thinking about those live sessions, and you know one of the one of the biggest excuses that we give ourselves, me included, I fall into this trap, is that it's harder for me than it is for other people. You know, that somehow like well, this is harder for me. It's uh, and. and What's, what I love about those live sessions is, you know, the last several months, we've averaged five to 600 leaders on that thing. So from frontline, you know, uh, uh, individual contributors to the CEOs of major corporations and everywhere in between. Um, and, and there are people from all across the United States and even, you know, dozens of countries around the world. And they're sharing their perspectives on these problems and looking at different things. And, 
and uh, and so it's it's not just the content that's coming from the instructors, which is valuable. We have two or three different instructors sharing their perspectives, which is which is great. Uh, but then you see from the other leaders that are on there sharing those ideas. And so often we hear the sit rep center thanking other leaders for, hey, thank you so much for putting me on to that, uh, you know, for the, this the, this thing that I researched or that book that I read uh, or this this idea that you gave me or a, a way to actually implement extreme ownership in this case or, or, or you know, to reach out and build a relationship with Cover Move. Uh, it's, it's, it's not just us, but it's the other leaders that are on there. Um, and their perspective that I think has been incredibly valuable to help people solve their problems through leadership. Yeah. And what's great about the, is that you see people, the community is great and I love it because they're all helping each other. So someone will post a question and to your point, people will share that they're dealing with the same thing. So people start to recognize, okay, your problems aren't, aren't unique. Everyone's dealing with the same challenges, maybe different levels of severity, but they're all, we're all dealing with the same things in our lives. And so you're getting feedback from other people and how you might apply our principles. And I love to see people able to make that connection between understanding the principles and then applying that. That's a, that's a big step people have to make. So that's amazing. It's also a reminder to me that leadership is not an inoculation. And the fact that, you know, sometimes you have people that have been in the game for years and then they'll come up with a question someday and you're like, huh, interesting you asked that question. How long have you been on these sessions? And it's a reminder to me, not a hit to that person, that these principles have to constantly be at the forefront. This is this is a nonstop effort. And I think that's where people have to, you have to understand that if you're going to go down this path, because it is not something you just say, okay, I got it. And I'm going to start taking ownership of everything and move on. Uh, I think even for the best of us, even for those of us that teach it regularly, it's a constant reminder to me that I have to be diligent in applying these principles. I cannot slip up because the second that I think I've got it all figured out, I'm making a mistake that I shouldn't be making. I'm blaming someone or something that I shouldn't be doing. I'm you know, in causing friction in my relationships, whatever it might be, we really have to stay dil- diligent in practicing these principles. And you see that in the academy because we have longtime troopers in the game that will come off me and ask that question. And I think to myself, like, you know the answer to this. And I actually love it because Jocko's great at being like, hey, what do you think I'm going to tell you right now? And you see it. They know the answer. And the only thing that's keeping them from seeing the truth is their ego. So it's a really great experiment for all of us in these leadership lessons. It is simple, but not easy. No doubt. That's, uh, it is not inoculation. It's something we have to train and, and, and think about all the time. Um, you know, that, the, the monthly free calls that we do with first responders are awesome where we have hundreds of, uh, police and firefighters and paramedics that join those things. Um, and, uh, and that's been awesome. But one of the, one of my favorite things that you've created is the women's assembly, as, as you mentioned. And to me, this goes all the way back to, you know, you mentioned the first time that you spoke was in Australia, December, 2019, before the whole, you know, world was locked down with, with the COVID-19 pandemic. And you spoke for the very first time there, and there was a there was a there was a lady uh, who came up to me. She was a business leader there from from Sydney, and uh, you know, in her Australian accent, which I won't it, it, it attempt to mimic, <laughs> but she came up to me and she she was she was furious, and she said, "Why are there not more women here?" And I thought that was kind of an attack on. I was like, I was like, look, I'd love there you know to be more women here, and so I realized very quickly that. 
she wasn't mad at us. She was mad that more women didn't understand that these principles applied to them and that, that didn't get a chance to hear you speak and how you, you two can apply these principles in your world with, with tremendous success. And, and she, was, she was furious that more women weren't there because we, at that time we had maybe had what – you know, 12 or 15% of- I don't even of, think it was uh, that high. It was probably like seven or eight. <laughs> yeah, it, it started very low. Most yeah. of the most of the people that came to our early musters were, were men. And uh, and so we've slowly started to creep that percentage up. And and, uh, and and one of the biggest boosts of that is the women's assembly that you've created, these monthly free sessions of only women. And initially, I got, I, I felt uh, left out because I was, I, I, uh, I think I asked the question. I was like, okay, Jamie's starting the women's assembly. I was like, hey, do you mind if we listen in? And you were like, let me think about that. No, I don't want you on there. So we were, I was banished from from listening into this. Now we did have, I think I came into one as like, uh, I, I under a pseudonym and tried to listen in, which I unfortunately had my video on. So then I got, I got kicked off. JP came in with one where he had his daughter, who's got this red frizzy hair standing over the top of him. So uh, uh, he was uh, pretending to, uh, to be a part of it there. But you've, you've reached hundreds of, of women and uh, who otherwise probably don't want to hear from me or Jocko or think, hey, what do these shaved head meatheads know about what it's like to be a, 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 a woman and in a leadership position and uh, applying these principles? And, and you've, you've been able to share this with an audience that, that doesn't want to hear from us, but, but is willing to, to listen and hear from you. Yeah, I'll give you one correction. It's thousands of women. We're now up over 7,500 people in that platform who have signed up to participate in the Women's Assembly. And yes, we've relinquished uh, some some reins. Men are, are, are able to join. And we actually do have some men that join regularly, which is which is great. I think it's a good uh, a good way to support. It actually, I can't take credit for the initial idea. It was our intern at the time. Brilliant young lady. Absolutely adore her. Uh, her name's Adi. And she was on, on board uh, as an intern. And she really brought the concern to me of, hey, I think that there is a barrier to particularly women who feel like these principles aren't for them. Like they're not going to pick up the book. They're not going to join the academy. They're not going to seek out information from Echelon Front because it's combat leadership. It's military. And there was a disconnect for some women in understanding the military component and how it applied in their lives. And so it was her idea, like, hey, what if we did a women's only, you know, session, like a free session? This is, Again, this is mid-COVID. We're thinking of ways to spread the message, help people understand these principles. And I was a little hesitant at first. Um, but only because I just didn't know, like, is anyone going to sign up for this thing? And uh, she really pushed it, and we launched this free session. We started one a month, and it's crazy to think we're coming up on three years of doing that. Uh, throughout COVID, we ran these women's assemblies, and it started with a couple hundred and then a thousand and then 2,000, and now we're well up over 7,500 women who have joined this community who can join free once a month and join us for the women's assembly. We do about a 20, 30-minute topic, and then we take questions, and we answer questions, and we engage. Um, we bring in some really cool guests periodically, so it's not always me, uh, but we bring in some cool guests to share their stories and talk about, again, these principles, but outside of the combat component. So we don't get away from extreme ownership and the principles we teach, but we adjust the framework for how we're talking about them so that any barriers that existed there of the combat and military components are broken down and people can see these principles for what they are and understand how to apply, apply them effectively in their home life, in their business. Um, and it's been just an incredible 
incredible experience because I feel like I get to know these women. We get to talk about their challenges. We get to dive deep into their questions and their issues. And again, it's a learning lesson for me. I have to prepare for these sessions every month. So I'm thinking about these principles as it relates to women. I'm thinking about examples in my own life of how these things have applied, answering their questions, helping them see the pathway to applying what we teach. Um, And it's just been awesome. And if they can't join live, we get a couple hundred that join live, but we get thousands of them that watch the video later at their own time. Because if there's one thing I know about women, they're busy. They're handling a lot of things. No doubt. And so they can join if they can. And if not, they can watch it at their own convenience. And it's been really cool. And to your point about the muster, we went from like 7 8% to the last muster we did in Atlanta. We had 22% women. And I think a lot of that was due to the effort of the Women's Assembly, which was started by ID, ID and now really headed up by Meg and our team and Corey, who kind of run that side of it. Uh, it's it's an awesome community, and I think we're helping to, to bridge that gap uh, between the military components. And I've talked to a number of women that, that have come to those musters, and they say they would never be there if it wasn't for the Women's Assembly. Uh, so that has certainly has opened uh, opened their minds, and and uh, and these are women that are that are in significant leadership positions. These are women. Uh, we we've had women come that are stay at home moms, you know, or teachers. I mean, every level of of leader that you can uh, that you can imagine. Uh, but it's been awesome to see that and, and the the minds that have been open and uh, the impact that you've had. Uh, specifically on just sharing your perspective and these leadership lessons uh, with them. And I'll make the argument that our, our the women are way more in the game. We may be smaller in numbers in the echelon front like community, but they are in the game. I love to see their posts. We have some women out there that are taking these principles, and they are just, for lack of better words, they are badass, and they are applying these principles, and they're a constant motivation to me. Uh, and so I love this community. It is it is so fun for me. I, we show up, and again, we've had some really incredible guests um, on this and other women to share their stories, uh, and it's just it's been really fun to, to grow that community. I don't dispute that in the least because uh, I've noticed that. I mean, even, even when it was only, you know, 10 or 12 or 15% of the muster, you would see that probably 40 or 50% of the questions that were asked were coming from, from women. So uh, there's no question we have some badass ladies that are in the game for sure. For the Women's Assembly, you get a lot of the same questions, uh, you know, and, and just like we get a lot of the same questions with the work that we do, uh, but you did, you did a Women's Assembly to address the question that you probably get most often recently, which is, it's different for women. Mm-hmm. And can you, can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So Meg and I were thinking about the schedule. We were talking about topic ideas for this year as we came up with the schedule for the next couple of women's assemblies. And there was an open date. And she's like, hey, what do you want to talk about? This is going to be your session. You know, what, what topics do you want to talk about? I was like, all right, let me think about it for a day. And I emailed her the next day. I'm like, here's the topic. It's different for women. And I have this idea because I think what's really common for a lot of women in leadership roles or just women in their home lives is this feeling that it's not fair and the workload is is not balanced and it's different for me because I'm a woman. And a lot of the questions we get every week or every month when we do these is, you know, hey, I work in a male-dominated field and I have a hard time gaining the respect of the people around me. Or, hey, I keep getting passed up for this promotion because of my male counterpart. Or I'm trying to lead and be assertive, but I'm getting feedback that I'm being too pushy or whatever it might be. They have these questions that are all kind of in the similar line of 
it's different for me because I'm a woman. And I think the reality of that is, yeah, it is different for you. And so in this particular session, I went through a laundry list of these things, examples in my life where I agree that this is different and it's unfair and sometimes it kind of sucks. Uh, you know, I made the example that, hey, when my husband travels for work, he packs a bag and he walks out the door. When I travel for work, I have to set up the schedule for the kids. I have to make sure I have childcare on certain days. I have to pack my bag and do laundry for the kids, make sure their uniforms are put in the right place, make sure the schedule on the calendar is completely filled out and contacts and, and what have you, you name it. But I carry a much heavier burden of the home life. I carry a much heavier burden on my kids' life. Part of that is because of the nature of my husband's work. He travels a lot. Um, and yet I have a company that I'm running and I'm also in a high-level leadership position and I have people here that are, that are, are um, reliant on me. And if I look back at every capacity in my life, I can point out examples where things felt unfair, where people undermined me, they underestimated me, where they were condescending or rude, or situations where I felt unsafe or things were happening that were inappropriate because I was a woman. And so we went through all these different things, things that I think a lot of women were probably getting amped up on, like, yeah, that's right, it is unfair, it's not okay. And the end result of that is like, hey, it's different for women. I agree with you. But the same exact principles apply. The same principles apply. Taking ownership is the only way that we take what we feel is unfair and we make it an opportunity. And at every turn, I, can, I went back through that list of examples that I had given and I showed them the opportunity, what ownership allowed me to do to overcome that situation. If I have someone who underestimates me, cool, I'm going to outperform and I'm going to outwork you. If I have someone in my organization who thinks I'm being pushy or aggressive, cool, I'm going to change my tact and tone to, to address you and communicate in a way that's more effective. I'm going to outmaneuver, I'm going to outperform, and at every turn, I'm going to take ownership of the problems that I'm facing, and more importantly, take ownership of the outcome and my opportunity to solve those problems. And so the whole session was really around agreeing that it is different for women, and I do believe that. But the same principles that we need to apply to be effective rest in extreme ownership and that playbook. Well, you've, you've lived and proven that, Jamie, in, in what you do and, and, and how you've gotten to where you are today as the chief operating officer at Echelon Front as a leadership instructor that's teaching these principles, you know, and I think if there's one thing that stands out to me above all else, and you've had so many incredible qualities, like I said, I don't know of any other human that probably has more leadership capital with me uh, and with Jocko than, than you do because of who you are and, and, and what you've demonstrated, uh, how you live and breathe these principles and everything that you do uh, and in and the, and the team that you've created. But the thing that stands out most to me is that you put the overall team in the mission first, always. And you don't ask for things for yourself. You're not doing these things and taking extreme ownership and implementing cover move and decentralized command for your own good. You're doing it for the good of the team. And I think that's, you know, if, if people are so sh short-sighted that they think, well, winning is just getting the next promotion or winning is just getting a higher evaluation than my peer. Um, and that's not what winning looks like to you. Winning is helping the team. Uh, and you've always put the team and the mission first. Um, and I think when people do that and do these things that we're talking about, they're going to win. And you've gotten promoted up the chain. 
into a significant position of leadership because of that uh, and how you demonstrate this and all that you do. And everything that you do is for the good of the team uh, and, and the mission and the clients that we work with to help them solve problems through leadership and win. Yeah, but every time, every time I've put the mission and the team first, I have benefited from that. It always comes back full circle. When you put other people and the mission ahead of yourself, and there's a lot of people that won't like that answer. There's a lot of talk nowadays, especially around self-care, and I'm not saying that you, you don't engage in those types of things, but I am always looking at how do I put my family first, my team at Echelon Front first, the mission first, and when I do those things and I'm not focused on myself, it always comes back around. I always see the outcome and the benefit of that. That for me is, is such a testament. And it's not why I do it. It's not this manipulative thing like, well, I'm going to put these first and it's going to come back and benefit me. But in every sense, uh, in every example I can give you, that's exactly what has happened. I put the team first. I put the mission first. And I believe in that. And I really look to take care of other people. And I benefit from that. It comes full circle. The strategic vision that you've had from day one, going back and reviewing those emails in uh, April of 2014, uh, nine years ago. And uh, it's, it's awesome to see that strategic vision uh, come, come full circle. And uh, when, you, when you think about that long-term good and, that's, uh, and, and how you contributed to this mission, I mean, we would never be where we are today with the reach that we have and the impact that we're having around the world if it wasn't for you and all that you do uh, at Echelon Front. And uh, you can shake your head and give credit to your team, uh, but that's 100% the truth. And uh, I can't thank you enough for, for all that you've done for me uh, and continue to do for me and the Echelon Front team and for all of our clients around the world. The gratitude is truly all mine. I mean, getting to work alongside you guys to be a part of this organization is unlike anything I could have ever imagined. The people we get to work with, the stories that we hear back, that, again, going back to those stories of impact, it's incredible. And it makes work so much fun. I never think of Echelon Front as overwhelming or work or tedious. It is it is everything because our mission is to help as many people as possible learn these lessons and these principles and apply it in their life so they can see the impact. And that started first and foremost with myself in seeing the impact of what these principles could provide me. That control, that liberating feeling that you talked about earlier to solve my problems, it's a total game changer. And if we can help other people experience that, there's no better mission I can think of to be a part of. So thank you and Jocko for trusting me and bringing me in and giving me that opportunity. It's, it's again, an honor of my lifetime. Outstanding having you on here, Jamie. Any, any final thoughts that, uh, that uh, you want to share? Just do it. Just stop making excuses. Just understand the value of this idea of ownership. You know, my brief at the muster is all around these barriers. And the whole point of that is that there are so many things that will keep us from taking ownership, so many things that will get in the way. And if we just get over those barriers, if we just look for how to take ownership, we make that our instinct, I promise you, you will see incredible impact. Everything in your life will get better. Not easier, but better. And it's it gives you control. It gives you freedom. And if there's one thing I can help people, if I can do here at Echelon Front is help people understand that, that's my mission is to help people recognize the power of ownership. But you just have to do it. Just stop making the excuses. Stop pointing fingers. Stop passing blame and just start taking ownership of every little thing you possibly can. And you'll see, you'll see the outcome, I promise. I think you are the, one of the greatest uh, examples I can think of that this stuff works. 
And, uh, and you've proven that over and over and over and over again. And continue to, to do that and share it with, with so many others. So thank you for all that you do, Jamie. And uh, thanks for being on with us today. I look forward to the next time. Thank you.